Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 464. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This week's interview is with my wonderful friend, Adrian Swinsco. Adrian's a speaker, multiple-time author, advisor, and renowned expert on customer experience. He's also been on my show two times before, a most rare occurrence. After Punk CX, he's now come out with Punk XL, where XL stands for Experience Leadership. It's a delightfully collaborative book. In this conversation with Adrian, we discuss what experience leadership means, the responsibility associated with freedom. What does authentic really mean? How to keep the voice of the customer present in your organization and the importance of the employee experience. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And please do take a moment to drop in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Adrian Swinsco. My chum, Adrian Swinsco, a repeat offender. Um, it's great to have you on my show again. Uh, written another book, bloody hell, Adrian. So um, wanted to talk about your latest book, uh, which has the wonderful Punk XL emblazoned on the front, written by you and a bunch of squirrels. <laughs> Yes, indeed. You called it your secret squirrel project. So first of all, tell us uh, what, what made you write this book, Punk XL, and how is it different from Punk CX? So first of all, thank you. Good to see you. The short story behind kind of Punk XL is that, uh, so Punk, Punk CX was, um, was written in, it came out in 2019, and it was born out of my frustration with uh, the, the customer experience space and how there was all this activity and investment and enthusiasm around it, but, and it had been for a number of years, but I was frustrated at the lack of significant improvement in outcomes. Like customer There's a lot outcomes. of talk, but not a lot of action. Exactly, right? And so the part of the hypothesis behind the book was that the hypothesis was that from a musical standpoint, progressive rock emerged in the 1970s. And whilst it was popular, it was also accused of being quite elaborate, self-indulgent, overly ornate, all those type, type of things. And punk music exploded at the back of it with its back to basics approach. Anybody can have a, have a go at it, go at it, and pick up some drumsticks and a guitar, write a tune and see how you get on. And it struck me at the time that the experience space was starting to exhibit some of the same characteristics as progressive rock did in 1970s, that it's becoming almost like overly complicated, certified, codified, metric, benchmarked, all these different sort of things, and, and sort of endangered losing sight of its true and real constituents, i.e. customers, and more interested in it itself. And that, that led me to think, well, if that's true, then what would a punk version look like? which gets back to basics, which is all about heart and emotion and about kind of, you know, delivering kind of like something that kind of moves people. 
And so that came out and that, that landed um, and it sort of found its own space. And it was, it was, it was just really different. I, I did it because I, I as I say, I was, it was born out of frustration. Um, and I always call it two things. One is I call it an art project. And so it's just there. It's like any musical kind of album. It's like, you don't necessarily have to like all the tracks you might, as long as you like maybe one or two sort of tracks on the album, because it's kind of like styled that way, sort of short and pithy tracks rather than chapters, then that's fine. Um, but I also called it, because it was heavily visual, um, I call it a visual, I called it a visual slap in the face for the, for the customer experience space, because it was almost like a, an invite and a challenge to do better work. Now, that was in 2019. And for some people it was like, Wah! and then some people were like, oh, that's amazing. And then 2020 happened. And now we're sort of two years kind of into sort of a pandemic. And when 2020 happened, it was fascinating how it almost came of it, it, of it, it became completely relevant. It's funny that just when the first lockdown started, a friend of mine wrote me an email. It said, it's amazing to see how much punk CX is going on right now, where you take away all the kind of the stuff and you have to collapse things down to here are the necess the things that, that are absolutely essential, absolutely necessary. And then I was also speaking to another guy who is the CEO of a, a SaaS, a, a pretty important SaaS company in this sort of space. And he is part of this CEO networking, senior tech leader sort of networking group. And he said, what's fascinating is one of those kind of guys turned around to him after we'd been in the, after going through the first couple of months of the pandemic. And he said, you know, that thing that we said was important, are you customers? He says, now we realize they really are. And we're doing all the things that we said we should be doing, should have been doing kind of now that we were talking about kind of last year. And so it just basically made everybody go kind of pay it, pay attention. And that was great. And so we saw some great kind of progress and, and we saw some kind of like big failures and all these different things, but we saw a lot of people trying stuff. But what was fascinating for me, having written that and then watching all these things that happened is like over the last couple of years, and you know, particularly over 2020, because um, I think it's settled and formed in 2021 is, is how the, almost the tectonic plates have shifted terms of priorities and what's important and so on and so forth. Um, and it struck me that it's become no longer sufficient to talk about customer experience in isolation anymore. And I remember writing a piece in, I think it was in July of 2020. And it struck me that one of the pieces I've talked about, these number of imperatives emerging from this pandemic, and I talked about one which was an experience one. And it's it, it talked about this idea that we're going through at a minimum, a quadfurcation of the experience domain. It's a real word, by the way, I looked it up. Mm -hmm. um, Quadraphonics, that reminds me of the who. Yeah, exactly. And it seemed to me that, that that rather than just having, because what we normally saw is that this idea that people normally put customer experience here, employee experience here, and so on and so forth, it's all very quite separate. But actually, it felt like all those things were sort of merging together and we ended up with a bigger experience domain where you have a customer bit, you have an employee bit, you have a stakeholder kind of bit. You might have an eco ecosystem, which is like a bit, which is an extension of your employee supplier kind of bit. 
And then there's also this other bit, which is almost like the connected tissue of all these different things, which is the experience of the leader. Because many people were saying, well, as we respond to the pressures of the pandemic, people, you know, managers, supervisors, leaders should look after their people. But we made some big assumptions that those leaders were capable of working in this new way. And evidence suggests that they're sort of, it put a lot of strain on them. And so what it showed is like, actually we need to re-examine what it means to be a leader in this sort of space. So that was the first part. And then the second kind of like part of it is that, is it that whole start, stuff started to ruminate. I started to ruminate on that. It's like a slow cooker in my brain sometimes. Um, I started to think about this thing is that all these different sort of dimensions. And then I was starting to think about, well, Surely the thing that, that we're trying to achieve here is how do we lead from an experience perspective? How do we achieve that? Because we're quite comfortable talking about brand leadership. We're quite comfortable talking about market leadership. We're quite talk comfortable talking about technological leadership and so on and so forth, as well as kind of personal leadership. But I don't think that we've really started to talk about what it, what experience leadership means, and what that means in terms of for the for the organization, for the people, for the culture, for how we do things, how we engage with our customers, and our impact on the on the on the broader world. And that's what Punk Excel was about, because the Excel stands for experience leadership. So it stands on the shoulders, if you like, of CX and says. I think there's a bigger game here. I think we need to start talking about it. I think we need to start thinking about what it means from the individual, what it means to lead a team in an organization that delivers the outcomes that you, that you aspire to. What is the, the culture and the employee experience that you need to, kind of, to enable that? How do you structure and organize a company to be able to deliver that? How do you engage with your customers? And then also kind of what happens beyond that in terms of your footprint on the world as it were and your society and and neighborhoods and things and so the book and again is just a as you say it's a collaborative effort so i've had um it's like the second album about collaborative effort i got second album jitters <laughs> and so i thought i'd de-risk the thing and find out if i was kind of mad or not by inviting a whole bunch of if like diverse voices and perspectives to try and enrich it um and they uh, they absolutely did and it's a i hope it's just a start of a conversation which says what does this mean and if i was to if you go are we experienced leaders and if not what do we need to do in order to get there well i you know when i was reading it it, it very much the idea of experienced leadership led led me to think really hard about culture mm -hmm. but but your and i think that's where it has to begin at some level your culture and the way you are with your employees your stakeholders but then it, it goes all the way out to the customers to the footprint so it becomes more than just culture so i i really did try to grapple with that adrian as i was reading it mm -hmm. and but i enjoyed it very much and so uh, one of the things i also think is is worthy of note is that you've decided to make all the profits go to charity um tell me about that process because as an author we don't make a lot of money 
That's for I certainly don't. Um, no. But uh, but it's a very it's a very generous uh, ambition. And so, which charity and why did you choose them? So, um, so first, so first of all, the, the I so writing the book, you're absolutely right. You don't kind of learn very much out of um, uh, from from book sales, not unless you're like a big name author and you sign a big kind of like deal and and then you're selling millions and millions of copies. It's not me. No. Um, but then working in in a, in a way where I had twelve contributors that contributed, I think somewhere in the region of about seventeen tracks to the book. I was thinking about, well, how do I? I don't want to just kind of say thank you very much and then not do anything with it. And I, so I thought to myself, I thought, well, actually, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm, making, I'm, make, I'm going to make an arbitrary decision. I'm just going to, I'm going to fund it. I'm going to create it because I think it's worth creating. Um, I hope the experience of contributing to it was was valuable and enriching for the people that are involved in it. And and, and my understanding is that it is. Um, but I thought, well, given where we're at, um, and as an acknowledgement of the collaborative effort of it, I thought, well, yeah, well, we should just donate the proceeds of the book um, to charity. And I decided that the the, the charity that I that a charity that I know reasonably well is a charity called Médecins Sans Frontières, or for other people called other, otherwise known as Doctors Without Borders. And I think it, they just felt very appropriate for the time that the book is coming out and what we've gone through, what many people um, are still going through and what many people will continue to go through over the coming kind of months and maybe years. And I think they're just an incredible organization that go to some places that many parts of the world have forgotten about and don't talk about to help people that are in distress. And so if we, can contribute just a few quid, you know, however it might be, uh, however much it is, um, I think that was the right thing to do. And and if people aren't familiar with them, that gives them a bit of visibility too. Médecins Sans Frontières was certainly something I know a fair amount about uh, with my old French background. And uh, and the interesting thing about the Médecins Sans Frontières, Without Borders, is that it does seem rather in the current of the day, which is this idea of globalization and, and the lack of borders that internet has made of the world. So kind of a, a funny congruency there. So I, what I liked about your book was this ability to sort of pick and choose as I went through it. There was, I, I sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll look, I'll start at the back of a book and uh, that was kind of fun as well. And so I, I did it in a kind of hopscotch kind of way. Um, but there were a bunch of tracks that I really enjoyed. And okay. so I wanted to start with the first one, which kind of felt like a paradox to me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I explained why. I think of punk as a rebel. Mm -hmm. and, and usually as a rebel, you're rebelling from something. Mm -hmm. Yet you talk about this idea of freedom in the book. Mm -hmm. And you write about the, and you say, freedom is responsibility, choice, and the free assumption of social obligations. It's about going from the freedom from to the freedom to do. Talk us through that, because I thought that was a really interesting uh, space. Excuse me. So if I'm not wrong, that's um, a track by um, 
Ari Weinsvig. And I should tell you about Ari a little bit. He's one of the contributors. And Ari runs, um, I should say that, that Ari and I are fellow philosophical anarchists, let's say. Um, and I've had him on my podcast, and I think he's a, he, he and his uh, co-founder, a gentleman by the name of Paul, I forget his last name, um, run what they call a community of businesses out, and they're generally food-related businesses, um, out in Ann Arbor in Michigan. And I just think some of the, they've been voted some one of the coolest businesses in America and things by Inc. Magazine and that sort of, that, that sort of stuff. And it's just because of how they go about it. And, and so Ari is a, is a, is a wonderful soul. And he contributed that. And, and, and I admit some of these, and he's a prolific writer. I can see some of the books that he's written up and he writes books that are like this yay thick, right? Inches. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, if you don't like it, it's going to be useful as a doorstop. I mean, they're they're kind of that kind of meaty. Um, yeah, they're kind of material. Um, when I first um, read that track, I had to read it and um, and and reread it again. I mean, a bit like you say, like there's difference of like you know, there's freedom from freedom to, and I was like, going, well, it's a really really interesting point. You know, this idea that you almost your existence comes with the responsibility. And it's almost a bit, it, it, to me, this is what it means to me, is that almost like being a, an active participant in the kind of the world comes with a responsibility. And it's sometimes it's not about what you're free from, but it's almost like what you choose to do. And that, I think that's the thing that people... Think about it. it's like sometimes you think about freedom is from a from a constraints perspective rather than a directional perspective and a choice in terms of this is how I choose to be. Like I choose to be, I try and you know I choose to be honest. I try and choose to be open. I try and choose to be uh, you know no, I don't try. I choose to be generous. I choose to be kind. I choose to be curious. I choose to be all these different sort of things. That's not a freedom from thing. That's I have the you know I make, I'm free to make those choices, which that allows me to define the direction, kind of of travel. And so that's what I think that that means, which is it's a really interesting distinction. Um, and I had to reread it again because I was the producer, as it were, on those kind of like tracks. They got sent to me, and I'm like going what, and. And when I read it, um, and I sort of like played around with it a little bit, it it did. It made it makes a lot of sense. And and actually, you know what? You talk about kind of like um, punks being kind of like rebels and stuff, but punks are also really thoughtful, and and sometimes thought provoking, and and show you things in ways that make you go, huh, okay. And, and sometimes that can be a surprise because sometimes it's not thought of being, uh, thought, of, thought of as being um, very sophisticated. It's, it's from the street, as it were. 
but actually it's there to surprise you because actually, you know, if you think about punk as a broader sort of social kind of movement, it's one of the most enduring and powerful and most significant social kind of movements that's happened in the last 50 years. You know, people kind of, you still go, think about punk and people go, oh, I think I understand what that means. So I wanted to juxtapose or at least put that in context because uh, I had a, um, a lovely exchange with my friend Scott Shute, who used to be in charge of meditation at LinkedIn. And he wrote in a mail um, that he, he left LinkedIn. He said, ah, the new life is fantastic. Geographic freedom, time freedom, financial freedom, all helps with the spiritual freedom, with a big smiley face. And, and often when we're working in business, the, the, the countervailing force that is not freedom full is the financial imperative, the, the financial, you know, you, you had the commercial call that always brings it back down to making the quick buck. And, and so I, I was I was thinking about that in in liberating us from that somehow anchoring point and giving us the freedom to do something important that will ultimately have to and does bring back financial profits as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it reminds me your story reminds me of another story that I heard about, and it's related to a guy who is. Um, He's 55 years old and he um, he's from Cuba, but moved a number of years ago to uh, Florida, I think South Florida. And, and he found himself kind of like working away, had his own little garage, his own like workshop doing this all the different sort of thing. And he's, he, what, was, what was interesting what you said, because he's actually moving... <laughs> And I've never heard about this before. He's moving back to Cuba from Miami because one, you know, I don't want to get political kind of here. One, he got sick of the, the the Cuban community kind of in 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 in, uh, in in Florida, but he also got sick of this. Is like you move to America, this idea of like freedom, as it were, in air quotes. That's actually what you're moving to is capitalism, in air quotes. He says, you don't really have time to do anything because you're always hustling to kind of earn the money, you can do the thing, all this kind of stuff. He says, I don't have time just to go fishing. And so he's almost kind of going back to Cuba because he wants a simpler life where you can just go, I can just dial down and I can choose to go fishing and so on and so forth. And so I think the thing about the... The idea when you talk about, I think it's about choice. Sometimes we get trapped in kind of what, into this idea of th thinking what it is that we need and what we want and things. And and I think we probably need way way less than we actually kind of like have or want. And because we don't kind of make those distinctions and try and break those kind of bonds, then we get caught up in this need more money, need more money, need more money. Um, and I think that becomes that like relates back to kind of what Ari was saying is the you know the freedom from 
the constraints that other society and other people are putting on and the freedom to choose to define your own life and what is important to you and what's not important to you. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. Well, of course, this other chapters within your, you know, tracks, as you call them, within the book. One um, was by Lara Curry. Yeah, and she she's talking about the the voice of of a customer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is one powerful letter she writes. Oh, or, uh, where I had she, to she, persuade her to because she wrote that sort of thing as she's struggling to write something, and I said, just write something, write from your heart. She she wrote this thing, and I was like going, she was like, I'm not really sure. I said, I'm suggest we write it as a letter i'm just gonna we should top and tail it sort of thing because here's the thing it's real it's raw it's it doesn't have to be right but it's like full volume and you're absolutely right it's like you're like hair exactly (laughs) well it's a very incisive message and it does speak to the the different voice of the customer i feel like this idea that the customer is important is is old news if it weren't for the fact that people aren't doing it. But what is so? What's different is, of course, not only does the customer have the opportunity to express his or his or herself online or wherever. What they're talking about isn't just shitty experiences, you know, bad product. It could be also, hey, you're not a good company. You might have a good product, but you're not doing good for the world. And people are, are looking from in terms of the voice, the tone, the message of the customer outside of the invectives is, is also about a deeper, more meaningful objective for your company. And I think that's absolutely right. I think um, a lot of people, this rising idea, the thing I talk about, what I mentioned before, talk about the stakeholder experience. That's quite a broad umbrella but it's there to try and um almost like characterize this sort of like that your the your brand's impact on um impact on and contribution to environmental and social and community and kind of political and all these different sort of all these different dimensions your contribution to those domains is people look at that and those things are starting to blend, you know, come together. So it's not just, it's not separate from some of the concerns your customers have or some of the concerns your employee have there. All these things are overlapping and 
increasingly customers are, are reporting that some of these, you know, these things matter. And what's fascinating is that with the pandemic and all the stuff that can happen, is it excel? It, well, one that highlighted those things and accelerated um, those things. Like people were were exhorting companies to look after their people and look after their suppliers. But then you end up with um, all of the um, many of the different sort of protests that took place. You know, particularly the around social injustice and kind of discrimination. You know, in particularly kind of like the, the Black Lives Matter kind of movement that 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 many people and it was spread around the world and many people took it as as, as a as a um, it was a flag to gather under to coalesce under, which speaks to kind of injustice, social injustice, and discrimination. When people are going pointing the finger at kind of brands, going yes you need to do better on this and across all these different sort of you know sort of things and then you add in you layer in all of the environmental sort of stuff that starts to kind of happen as well and look i don't um i feel a little bit sorry for many of the the senior leaders in brands that have to deal with this sort of stuff because this is an increasingly complex sort of picture and these are hard scales to balance and multi-dimensional scales to, to, to balance. It's a bit like playing, I don't know, or is it 3D chess that they used to that Sheldon and Leonard play in, in, in a big bang theory, which I'm like, I don't understand how that works. But that is that complicated. So I um I do have um I do recognize this is a complicated thing, but this is for me, this feels like this is the game now. This is how things have changed. And it's changed so fast that it's complicated. And that's why I'm trying to to do a, to start that conversation to help people, to encourage people to think more holistically about the, this is the game that we're playing. And to realize it's complicated. Because the sooner you get started on this, then the, the more experience you're going you're gonna to gain, the more understanding you're going to have, you're more kind of the, the, the better suited and better equipped you are going to be to be able to respond to this sort of stuff. Because trust me, I believe, I truly believe that none of this stuff is going away. It's, it's going, it's going, it's going, it's keeping going. And so the rules of the game are changing. People will resist the change because there's vested interests that don't like all this sort of stuff but the change is coming and the quicker that you get onto this kind of like this 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 train as it were or into this kind of road into this kind of groove and start to wrestle with it customers will go on the journey with you your people will go on the journey with you because people understand that this stuff is difficult and it takes time to get right. But if you have the right intent in your heart about what you want to do, I think people will just travel with you. So I, I, I was thinking uh, as you spoke about that, about squid games, hmm. how it moves away from a, a game on a screen into in, of course, still a fictional space, but real life and, and so it makes me think of the corporate world, which previously was a sort of a nine to five in an office thing. 
to being a 24-7, no boundaries, like the Médecins Sans Frontières uh, thing, where it's all invasive, all in, everything counts. And, and so it leads me then to, to kind of, I think in that context, understand what authentic means, because it necessarily means we can't be perfect. Because yeah. by gum, we even if we try to pretend nine to five that we do everything right, we aren't perfect. And we can't possibly be perfect all the time to everybody everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I question the whole authenticity kind of thing in the book. Like, what does it really mean? Uh, use the example as like, um, so if you're a jerk and being and you're consistently a jerk, are you not being authentic? Because authenticity and being authentic in that and from a dictionary perspective means being true to your your genuine self. And then conversely, if you were trying to be kind and generous and insightful and empathetic and all these different sort of things, working from a base of being a jerk, but you're trying to be a you know, less of a jerk and more kind and empathetic and generous and all that sort of supportive and enabled and an enabler, et cetera, et cetera, then technically you'd be unauthentic. And, and so that I, I, I struggle with this, these canned versions of stuff that people aspire to be. It's like, it's like hero leadership or transformational leadership and all these different things. I'm like, it's like, um, if you're true and honest with people and straightforward with people, then people are able to make a choice, right? Um, and yeah, that's going to be problematic for people. And it will be problematic for big companies that have, um, that are quoted and, 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 and have to deal with all sorts of kind of like uh, legal and financial and risk related sort of like stuff. Um, but I think it's still a problem that needs to be solved. Well, I, I've had two recent guests on my show, both of whom were psychologists. Mm -hmm. uh, Manfred Katz-Devries, a professor at INSEAD, just as uh, he's written 60 books, and he probably would have a, uh, you know, a, a long-term uh, route of, of, uh, of clients because of the nature of, of the beast today. And I think, a lot, as you say, a lot of companies are going to be faced with the problem of actually, first of all, do leaders know who they are in the first place? And if they, if they have this idea, to what extent it's actually related to who they truly are and or related to the perception of them as leaders as they drive this experience leadership. There are two things, Adrian, I wanted to um, address before we close off. The first is you talk about uh, how importance varies um, with the survey that was done by Avas, uh, the, the advertising agency. It, they did this X index, yeah. uh, which covers several countries and shows how importance, what's important changes or varies according yeah. to countries. And I was um, um, puzzled at some level how some countries believe in personalization more than others. It, it, one of the things that's, it seems so deeply challenging for large organizations trying to get this X right is dealing with the cultural differences, which include, well, my privacy is more important than their privacy, 
my data in my country has different laws um, and, and permissions here and there are different. And, and so when you're trying to create an experience and you're trying to maybe move towards personalization and make the people feel like they count, uh, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a fuck fest. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. A, it, it is. I think the, the reason I found the Havis's research um, really interesting because anecdotally, I'd heard lots of different kind of like stories about lots of different kind of um, things from around um, kind of the world, where it's like this. It's almost a bit like this thing. It's like um, I learned this new this new word called multivalent, which is um, where you can take something and. It's a bit like having the, the doing that exercise with the kind of the um, the multicolored beach ball where you stand in the center of a room and it's got multi- different colored kind of panels, and if you have a circle of people that stand around it, and you stand in the middle of the room and you ask each person to describe the beach ball, then they'll all give you different answers. And I think experience that the, what there's that the, the Havis's study showed is that experience. Is quite a nuanced thing. Now, I think there are bases, there are there are basics, and there's foundations kind of in there. But it's almost a bit like here's a here's a reference, a music reference for you. It's a bit like having your graphic equalizer for uh, for different kind of countries, right? So it's like you get your bass sound, so it's there, and understanding what that basics means for your brand and for your market and for your value proposition and all these different sort of things that can give you a good place to start. And then you can start fiddling around and fine tuning the proposition, depending on the, the different markets. The challenge is, because I, I completely get what you're saying. It's like, it's a fuck fest. It's like the people are just, you get mind blowing at blown at the kind of the variety that you're, that you're presented with. Yeah. The complexity. Yeah, of course. But here's the trick. I actually don't think many brands have figured out what the basics are. So it's a bit like you're trying to build a big house, right? But they still haven't kind of figured out that you need to build a big house on solid foundations. And actually, the many of the, 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 the big and the most successful brands around the world, um, there's like a secret that's hiding in plain sight. They do the basic stuff really well. And then that gives them permission to, that gives them one, that a, a reputation for reliability and credibility and trustworthiness and all that stuff because they show up when they need to show up and they, and they solve the kind of problems. And then, then it allows, they, they, it's an old idea, but it's almost building an emotional bank account with their customers because I already trust you. And therefore that allows you to kind of, to go on a journey to build things on from there. And it gives you the, the greater wherewithal to be able to make mistakes because you've got credit in the bank as it were. So the problem is, is that people are jumping forward when they actually should be kind of like starting and going, what are the basics? How do we do the basics kind of really, what are the basics mean for my brand, my positioning, you know, my, my product, my service, kind of the, you know, the market that we find ourselves in, you know, and, and how can I deliver that consistently kind of well? Problem is most of that stuff is not very sexy. And then you run in a counter in, into a, you run then into, you can start getting tripped up with the, the, the 
some of the other dynamics that exist in organizations around people being um, interested in cycling through positions. And or justifying the why I went to business school. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And so it's all about like, I'm going to do something short term and I'll get promoted and I'll go on from here and, da, 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 and so on and so forth. So they're not in it for the long haul. They're in to, to do something which is fancy and get attention and it's new and exciting. And that's the thing that they get promoted on. Well, I mean, you know, that, that does bring up another point, which is why am I working? And, and part of uh, actualization is also achievement and feeling like I did something. And if it's but simple and it's just repetitive boredom every day, that also doesn't lead to a great employee experience. So you've got to find ways to, to jazz it up and, and make everyone feel like they're contributing and, and participating in something bigger because you know, it's like the, uh, who's that? The JFK went to the, someone at the NASA and the janitor. So um, what are you doing? So I'm here, I'm making someone go to the moon. Yeah. That kind of feeling, attaching it to something bigger. Yeah, you can take it in, the, in, in a very simple sense. Let's take a very, like a service contact center sort of space, a very quite traditional sort of space. Most contact centers, even now, they're kind of shitty places to work. They're not kind of looked after, not well-resourced, not people not well-paid, not necessarily well-trained and things. They suffer. Most contact centers will suffer on average somewhere between about, let's say, um, the number varies, but let's say it's about 50%, between 40 and 50% employee churn on an annual basis. Now, that's a wild figure if you just think, actually, um, you think about, I've got a row of five people, then they go, out of those five people, two of them are not going to be here next year. Minimum. And it's always going to, it's always a constant sort of thing. So it might be, a, you know, and that has implications on quality of, you know, service delivery, cost of training, kind of cost of hiring, all of this performance, all of that sort of like stuff. Imagine if you took a, took it on as leader and you go, you, you went, hmm. Um, oh, and by the way, many of those people don't leave because, well, the, many of those people leave because they're just not getting the support and the training and everything and, and, and everything else that they want. Now, imagine if you can turn around and take it upon yourself to say, I want to make a difference. I'm going to make it my mission to half that number. From like in two years, whatever, I'm going to take it from 40% to 20%. And how much of a massive impact that's going to have on the business in terms of its cost base, its efficiency, its performance, and 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 then the the thing around because you're going to have to do a whole bunch of stuff around employee experience and engagement and, and all these different sort of things. But then we forget the experience of the people that are working on the front line. It's like imagine how many people you're going to be impacting because people don't want to change jobs. People generally want to apply for a job, get a job, and then do a good job. And if you can half the number of people that are having to kind of like cycle out because they're like, this is rubbish, I'm out, before it kind of destroys me. And if you can make a difference in that way, then then you're making a difference to people's lives as well as to somebody's performance kind of uh, metrics, as well as to somebody's balance sheet. You, For me, you think, I think that stuff of fucking rock stars. Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, of course, you, you have to start if you're leading a company. You also need to bear in mind that basically seven out of 10 employees are disengaged at work. 
Mm-hmm. So not a, that you know that's even worse, if you will, than well, and of course the churn that comes with that. But it's the the disaffection with work. And I, I was I think I would challenge most CEOs and and ask them where's the voice of the customer in the boardroom in the decisions that are being made and your customer service. How often do you interact with them? It, it certainly was. Obvious to me, and of course, I, I will. I say, of course, I, I was fortunate that I had somebody who working in customer service when I was working in Canada, who opened me up and allowed for us to have a relationship where I had the customer service head in my executive committee, relating all her experiences with her team and her team with the customers. It's amazing that people even consider outsourcing customer service. Adrian, I want to spend the last piece just talking about the future. You do have a piece about the future in, uh, in, in the book, of course, but I wanted to look at Excel, experience leadership and customer experience in the context of, of what people are talking about today, which is that the future will be this meta future, a metaverse that it will be web three. So metaverse being this idea that rather than going on the web, that the web is around us and, and the, the internet is everywhere. And web three difference, just to give the definition, is more that supposedly everything's decentralized. We've gone, we're moving again from centralization back to what the original idea of web two was, which is decentralized and, and um, a freer version. Yeah, so okay. if, if that's the future, let's say, do you agree? And then Two, how does one attempt, if it's complicated and complex today, moving into that world and creating a better CX and a better experience leadership? Um, I mean, a really good question. I mean, and and um, I think that I don't necessarily believe it's the future. I think it'll, I believe it will play a part in the future. Mm. I think the way that it's getting pitched, it's like, ta-da, it's like, here's the new thing. Open this, kind of like, enter this new room. This is going to be, there's going to be the everything, the all-encompassing everything. And I'm like, mm, I'm not so sure. And for various kind of like reasons, one is that I think that The, also, the last couple of years has also shown us, one, what we can do when we are forced to operate remotely and digitally. But it's also shown us what we really value and what we really miss when we have to operate remotely and digitally. So more of the digital might be so okay for some, but probably not for everybody. And I think people have got this idea that like they really like the kind of, uh, and they're yearning after the sort of the, 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 the face-to-face. The local, the human. The local, the, the human. The, the hug. Of, the hug, and the handshake or the fist bump or whatever it might be, the kiss on the cheek. Um, and so I think for many, I think more digital isn't necessarily the whole thing. Um, I also have concerns about when I think about the kind of the decentralized nature of some of the technology, 
particularly how a lot of the stuff may actually be built on the blockchain um, or on blockchain networks. I have serious environmental concerns about the amount of power it takes, the amount of energy it takes to power this sort of stuff. There was, I think it was a piece of, um, I saw a piece of research that said, like a bit, the Bitcoin kind of market or the cryptocurrency kind of market on an annual basis uses the same amount of energy as the whole of Austria or something. Which yeah, is, I, th- I know, I know, I think it's um, Holland uh, was the one I was, uh, I got, right. but the same idea. Yeah, which is just like you go, what? And people kind of like think because you can't see it because it's digital and stuff, you don't necessarily see the environmental kind of impact of it. But, you know, what's really clear is that these things have a cost to them. Now, I'm not saying that the, the technology is not interesting and not useful and everything else, but we have to, people way cleverer than me have to find out, figure out a way that how can we make this type of interesting technology work more energy efficiently for it to really to be able to fit in in a sustainable kind of mix. And then and when we do that, then I think we'll probably start to see um, the, the kind of the real potential of it. Because also kind of the, the other thing about it, we, kind of right now what we're talking about, we're talking about, we're, talking, we're in a, in, particularly in Europe, we're in this energy price crisis that's for sure energy bills kind of spiking up and if you're looking at that becomes a cost that plugs into that which then kind of pushes up the price of entry as it were um and so i think there's all sorts of dimensions that i think that are that both human and behavioral and experiential that 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 that's going to mitigate kind of its adoption and, and impact and stuff but i think there's also some technological and environmental and energy can relate to stuff that kind of needs to be figured out for it to be able to kind of progress. And I think it's interesting. I don't know enough about it, but I'm just thinking about the more kind of. Yeah. My, my read on it, Adrian is, is um, like you, I, I mean, who's to know, but the underlying principle of decentralization and the blockchain is for me, a notion of trust. Mm-hmm. And what, is obvious is that we there's a uh, a lacking or a diminishment of trust in these big platforms, and I think in big institutions in general, the lack of trust has been a, an ongoing thought. But it it would appear to me that this is a kind of movement against big tech, and is hopefully uh, is is sort of suggesting well we don't trust you. We'd like to have our trust elsewhere. Can the blockchain be the answer to it? Maybe in the absence of going through Web3 or something like that, the the real question is, how do you instill greater trust amongst your employees and your stakeholders and create that great experience? So um, I'm going to call it quits, Adrian. But um, So how does someone get your book, something like Getting to... I was waiting for that one. Getting to wow um, your, uh, of course, yeah, your Punk CX and your latest book, Punk XL. What's the best way? How can people contribute otherwise to Médecins Sans Frontières? Um, so I would say so that the, the, the Amazon is your best source for all of these, uh, all of these books. 
um, I write in the inside cover of um, each of the punk books that it's printed on demand uh, by relentless.com. So fun fact, if people don't know who relentless.com is, then put it into your browser and you'll be surprised to, to see that it takes you to the Amazon homepage, which then tells you everything you need to know about Amazon. Um, but their on-demand printing facilities, I have been very impressed with and their kind of global distribution and therefore, um, it's probably the least punk thing about kind of the punk books, but you know, um, it, it, it helps get the message out. So the short answer is go to Amazon um, and kind of uh, you'll find the kind of books kind of there. And the ways to get in touch with you, Adrian? So the ways to get in touch with me are um, just Google me or Bing me or DuckDuckGo me or whichever your search engine of choice um, and put my name in Adrian Swinsco. So that's A-D-R-I-A-N-S-W-I-N-S-C-O-E and you will find me because there's only one of me. And I, I concur that you are the best, Adrian. <laughs> Thank All you right, so brilliant. Much. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on Minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me, precipitating the danger To feel free, trust is a reason Still I won't tell the lie I sit here passively, hope for your respect Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself, there's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man building an urge I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man challenge my fate I'm a convinced man competition's innate A convinced man in the arms of a woman Despise revenges and struggle with deceit Live for the challenge so life's not incomplete What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger to feel free trust in my reason and let me show you why i'm a 
I'm a convinced man practicing my lines. I'm a convinced man here in these confines. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man put to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. of a Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years' experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.